0: Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books. And check out our website, WaitingRoomRevolution.com, for more information. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, we've heard people say on the podcast so
1: many times, um, I would never want my illness to define me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And... I mean, I think that's a totally, uh, totally acceptable and and you know valid thought process.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but myself, I, I want I I want my illness to define me, mm-hmm. but I want it to define me on my own
0: terms. That was Jeremy Saunders, producer and host of the popular podcast Sick Boy. We talk about his podcast, how psychedelics helped address his fears about dying, and how new medications for his cystic fibrosis are giving him a new lease on life, and what that means for how he thinks about dying. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
2: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The Waiting Room Revolution starts right now.
2: Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. We're yeah. so excited.
1: Well, th- I mean, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm, excited, to, uh, I'm excited to chat.
0: Good. Yeah. So I thought for our audience, we might start with. I know you were born with cystic fibrosis, but can you just briefly tell our audience, like, what is that disease all about?
1: Oh, geez. Well, uh, first, first off, I will say that I I am a theater school dropout, uh, not a physician. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so uh, just take what I say with a grain of salt. But from what I've gathered over the thirty five years of um, being alive. And, and having cystic fibrosis. Um, CF is a, is a genetic disease. Um, I believe it's the most common genetic disease among young Canadians. Um, and it, uh, it basically affects uh, multiple, multiple organs throughout the body. So, so the CFTR gene is the gene that is mutated in my body and that basically prevents my body from having the ability to um, to clear out mucus and it has something to do with like sodium channels. And, and I, I, I I mean, that's, that's, that's the point where I get lost, but, um, basically all the organs of my body are being, are being affected by a buildup of mucus. So, Mm -hmm. so if we were to look at like my, uh, my pancreas, for example, Mm -hmm. my pancreas, because of the CFTR gene mutation, doesn't have the ability to produce, the digestive enzymes mm-hmm. that a normal healthy person's pancreas would produce. And so, um, every time I eat, I have to take. Enzymes orally, um, malnutrition a big issue with cystic fibrosis. So, you know, for a lot of people, it's really hard to gain weight. Mm-hmm. Um, another, another big part of CF, and I think this is like kind of the bigger part, the part that most people know about is the lungs, right? So mm-hmm. my lungs, um, have a hard time clearing out a buildup of like heavy, sticky, thick mucus, which is like a, a breeding ground for bacteria. And so, you know, oftentimes um, just a, a common head cold more often than not can like easily turn into something kind of scary like pneumonia. And so it's through, um, you know, repeat infections and through clearing out that mucus, um, that's where the, the scarring kind of occurs in the lungs. So the, the fibrosis of the lungs. And so, um, that mucus, uh, that mucus essentially is the reason why my lungs don't function at as high a rate as someone with a normal healthy set of lungs. Mm-hmm.
0: How serious is your illness? Would you say?
1: Well, that's a, that's kind of, it's that's a really interesting question because I feel like that question, I would have answered that question very differently two years ago. And uh, then I, then I would answer it now. Um, um, so for context, um, you know, I, I, lived the majority of my life with this notion that I would, I would probably be dead by 30. I'm 35 now. Um, and you know, big reason for the, for, for that, for being 35 and not being dead five years ago has to do with the medical advancements that have taken place, uh, since I've been born. And there's been a lot and it's, it's been vast and it's been, it's been kind of, you know, rapid and, and really fascinating to watch. But one of the biggest sort of leaps that the CF community has seen in recent past is um, the introduction of a, a new medication called Trikafta, which is a, a, a gene modulator. It's, it's a drug that, that doesn't treat the symptoms of CS, but, but CF, but rather it sort of treats at the, at the source, right? Um, it's not, it's not a cure to CF, but it's, it's, pretty damn well close to the next best thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, trikafta has completely altered my life. It's flipped it upside down in, in, in amazing ways. Um, for example, my lung function before I started Trikafta, I think it was around like 55%. Mm-hmm. And uh, two months after starting Trikafta, my lung function was at 80%. And now Mm. it's sitting somewhere around 85%. I've been on Trikafta for about a year. Mm. Um, Speaking to the the malnutrition aspect of things, uh, when I started Trikafta, I was was the heaviest I'd ever weighed in my life, which was like about 138, 140 pounds. I've never really been able to break that. Mm. Um, I'm almost 170 pounds now. Mm. And again, that was like two months after taking it. It was like immediate weight gain. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I guess to you know the long the long answer to your question is, although although I still have cystic fibrosis for sure, it most certainly is not as serious as a disease as it was before Trikafta. Now I don't want that I don't want that to sound like it's it's no longer um, a big deal, uh, because you know. It really doesn't take much for, for things to shift really rapidly in, in, um, you know, that's the reality of folks living with CF. Um, but that drug most certainly has made the quality of life for me far greater, uh, quality of life than what it was prior to having Trikafta. So, yeah, I I hope that answers your question.
2: Yeah. I mean... That's amazing. It it sounds like this medication as you know it doesn't cure the CF but that it is going to hopefully be disease modifying. It's going to help extend your life longer than it would have had you not had it not been invented.
1: Totally. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I think it's it's probably too early to tell, but my guess is that in the next, you know, 10-15 years we'll start to have a a better idea of like how much Trikafta really is extending the life expectancy of people living with CF?
2: In our podcast, we talk about um, seven skills that people who are facing a serious illness could benefit from in order to improve their illness journey. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of them is the ability to walk two roads. And so what that means is being able to remain hopeful, uh, and cheerleading and positive, uh, while at the same time planning for the what ifs. And I feel like you've been walking that road for 35 years that you have been, you know, hoping for the best, but planning for the rest, just in case that you said yourself that your expectation was that this illness was going to be the end of you at some point, And you've gone beyond, uh, you know, what you, the years you expected to live. So what's it like walking two roads of, you know, hope and the possibility of decline? Mm.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really, um, I like the way that you put that, you know, walking two roads, having the ability to, to, um, to have a sense of hope, yet also planning for the the possible reality of something that you know isn't quite what you had anticipated, and I, I think I think I spent the majority of my life. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I, I, I never had hope, um, but I I think I definitely more so leaned into the the, the reality of the situation. Right, so um uh out of like out of myself and and the two guys that I host sick boy uh my podcast with Brian and Taylor, I would say I'm the pessimist of the group so i'm like I'm the one that's always kind of looking at like worst case scenario and we might as well just plan for that mm-hmm. um but when it comes to living with with cystic fibrosis i think I think what what i what I ended up doing was I ended up just um having having a sort of a sort of attitude that that you could kind of say is it fits within the the the, the saying of you know it is what it is, mm-hmm. and I, I I have no control over very much, but what I do have control over, I'm going to ensure that I I have an attitude that doesn't like make me feel like I'm I'm standing in a, in a vat of quicksand.
2: You may not have control over the cystic fibrosis natural history, but you have control over how you walk your journey. That's uh,
1: right.
2: Yeah. As Jeremy. Uh, yeah. Because Jeremy is going to be Jeremy. And if Jeremy's always been a matter of fact kind of person, like face things head on, um, you're going to face this head on too.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
2: have. I have a question for you. um, And I'm sorry to interrupt you. Does it irk you when you're walking your road with a certain high dose of reality? Like you have what we would say is high mortality awareness. You're a person Mm. who knows that for all of us, living means you're going to die one day. For me, for CN, for you, you happen to to have cystic fibrosis, I will get something at some point in my life. And so we'll see in this is high mortality awareness. Um, but people are uncomfortable with that, uh, especially young people. And I'm thinking of maybe your friends, and the people that surround you, who favor the road of hope, and can naturally swing to like this overly optimistic you know you gotta fight battle kind of um cheerleading when you yourself are very like no it is what it is like this is what i have let's be real here folks like Mm -hmm. how do you marry those who or does it irk you does it grate on you that everyone wants to say come on jeremy you know don't say that what don't you know shh you know what i'm saying <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah it, i mean it doesn't really it doesn't irk me or grate me i mean, I, mean I, I understand that i i first of all i understand that we live in a very death phobic society so you know most of the people that you meet haven't really taken a good chunk of time to meditate on the fact that they are finite and they are going to die and everybody they've known is going to die everyone they've ever loved is going to die um, we don't. We just don't think about that. I think I've spent a, a good, like, healthy amount of time not only meditating on my own death, but also sort of conversing openly about that, so that the people that I do surround myself with mm-hmm. start to also kind yeah. of feel inundated with that thought and and can feel at least familiar with the idea, the notion that like, okay, yeah, right, Jeremy isn't going to be here forever, mm-hmm. and neither am I, right? Like, you know, like just to just to encourage people to think about it and talk about it more. Um, I mean, obviously having a podcast that, you know, one of the key topics that is discussed on our podcast is exactly that, that, that definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, but yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really irk me. Um, I think, I, I think I've just, I've sort of made it become a part of who I am. It, it you know, it. I I I I identify as that person who's very openly okay with talking about mortality
2: mm-hmm.
1: and death and how that makes me feel, um, and and that I I think that plays into sort of this this way that I've I've um, this way of life that I've adopted that I feel pretty like strongly about. So mm-hmm. you know I, I we've heard people say on the podcast so many times um, I would never want my illness to define me
2: mm-hmm.
1: and. I mean, I think that's a totally, uh, totally acceptable and, and, you know, valid thought process.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but myself, I, I want, I, I want my illness to define me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I want it to define me on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about being the guy that openly mm-hmm. speaks about it, my shortened life expectancy with the people that I surround myself with, that's what I mean by like mm-hmm. my, uh, you know, on my own terms.
0: This is who I am. It's a huge part of who I am. And so has it ever come up in an episode or in a conversation about different decisions or preferences you might have that maybe are different from those in your inner crew, say for your co-hosts, Brian and Taylor? So, I, I mean, this was this
1: was quite a while ago, but uh, or early into the, the life of Sick Boy podcast, um, I was having a conversation with the guys And we were talking about uh, the the potential for uh, double lung transplant, which is which for a lot of people with cystic fibrosis, when you reach end stage CF, you know your lung function is like below thirty percent, twenty five percent, somewhere in that range, and when you get to that point, you're you're considered end stage, and you get put on a a list to get a, a new set of lungs. Um. And then, when you get those new lungs, you know if there's no rejection, then you could be at you could be tagging on another five to ten years of your life. Um, and so we had a couple of conversations at this point with people that have had double lung transplants or that were on the list for double lung transplant. And when I was having this conversation with the guys, I said openly, I was like, "Yeah, you know what? I, I I've thought about this a lot. I don't think I'll ever do it. I think I'll forego the lung transplant and just." Accept the end stage CF and go out however that may look. Hopefully, fingers crossed, made, you know, applies here. And the guys were like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? You don't want the do- double, you don't want the procedure that will extend your life by X amount of years. And I was like, no, I, I don't. I don't want to, I don't. To me, it's not worth rolling the dice to go through this extraordinarily invasive procedure. I don't care what the success rate is of the procedure, to come out on the other end, just to tag on another, let's say let's say I get five years. All right, so I tag on five extra years of life, but the year and a half after that surgery, the recovery time to get to that five years, well, that's already eaten up about a year. All right. So now we are, we're at four years to extend another four years, only to just go through the, the decline once again, four years in and, and then die. I don't know. Like I've, you know, to me, to me personally, not, you know, no judgment on anybody else, but to me, that notion, that idea seemed a bit greedy. Just I'll punch my ticket out. I'll take my time and go out that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, of course the guys hear this, it upsets them. And they book this guy, John Granton from Ontario, who's the head of lung transplant at, the at St. Mike's hospital who does a lot of CF transplants and they bring him on the show and he comes on the show to convince me. Otherwise he comes on the show to be like, Hey man, listen, it's not what you think. The success rate is actually higher than you think. And it's not just five years. It's, you know, it's this yada, yada, yada. So we have this conversation and At the end of the conversation, when the mics are off, John says, Hey, did I change your mind? And he didn't, but he definitely opened my eyes up to another possibility that perhaps maybe my mind would change if I found myself in that position of end stage CF. But the reality was in that moment, I was like, no, I don't think you did. Like, I I appreciate what you said, but I still think that I would just, that's the way I would go out and for me, the reason why is not just tied to not wanting to like push and, and try to squeeze out like another year or you know whatever it, it more so had just had to do with hey i've i've made meaning to my time here i've I've already come to the the acceptance of of my time coming to an end, and i don't feel the need to squeeze out anymore i don't feel the need to to make more meaning i don't feel the need to um to hit any more milestones. Like I, I feel like I've, I feel very content with what I've done so far.
2: You know, in our pot, in our podcast, these seven skills I'm talking about, one of them, um, we talk a lot about role modeling for other people around you, the way you want people to communicate with you. So, The way that you're going about speaking so openly and frankly and matter-of-factly about, you know, these these, um, not-so-easy topics, um, it's not only probably therapeutic for you, but you are essentially giving people their marching orders. Um, Hey, everyone around me, friends, family, doctors, Mm -hmm. nurses, all of you who may be uncomfortable with my situation. I'm asking you to speak openly. I want Mm -hmm. the truth. I want to live in a reality-based illness journey. Um, And, you know, you can't imagine how important that is, Jeremy, because more often than not, people will think um, the opposite, that they, that they don't have permission to speak openly with you and that mm. they tend to shy away or deflect or sugarcoat or um you know distract from from the reality of things. And so it, it can create such a vortex between people's communication flowing, you know, and so you are really giving a gift to people around you by you know, just role modeling how you want them to be back to you. Um, mm. I can't tell you how many times I meet people and I spend hours and hours dancing carefully, strategically around landmines uh, yeah. because no one wants to speak about the elephants in the room. And it is um, much healthier. Uh, you will have a more in controlled illness experience if you are the way you are Jeremy. So mm-hmm. like, it's so important for you. It's so important for the people around you. Your podcast is so important because you're really giving people permission to lean into the truth and reality uh, of their illness and therefore have a better illness experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so where do you think this openness and comfort or acceptance about talking about death and dying came from?
1: It's really hard for me to kind of pinpoint like where, where I started to have that that notion of like, okay, well, whatever, it is what it is. I'm going to talk openly about it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work towards becoming um be- becoming okay with the idea of my own death.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um not just okay, but like like you know, willing to embrace my own death. I don't know where I don't know where that start where that began. I don't know mm-hmm. where that sort of mentality started. Um, but I can kind of pinpoint certain moments in life where, if anything, it most certainly would have like increased that thought or, 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 you know, that, that, that way of living would have become even more apparent, right? Do tell. Well, I, I you know, I, I think that, um, okay. So I, I mean, one, one example would be, uh, through the use of psychedelics, right? So I had a, I had a, I had a, an experience, um, a number of years ago where I was a part of a ceremony ceremony that, that, uh, me and several other people were, uh, guided through a, a, psychedelic experience using five MEO DMT, which is, um, it's, Basically, uh, uh, a a toxin that is like found on the on the through through these cysts on on a on a, a toad in the Sonoran Desert, and and they they extract it from the toad, and then they crystallize it, and then you put it in a in a pipe, and you smoke it, and you have a um, you know it's considered the the, the strongest uh, hallucinogenic experience that one can have. And before I went into that experience, I um you know, we were told it's good for you to come into this with an intention. What is it that you want to get out of that experience? And so I went into that, uh, that ceremony. And as I was about to, um, inhale the five MEOD DMT, my intention was to die. My intention was I am going to surrender to death. So when I when I take a a a large inhale of this, I am not expecting to come back to this moment. I am expecting to cease to exist. This is it. I'm going to die, and uh, and it was really it was very it was very scary. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of unknowns. I had never I've never done five meo DMT. I was I you know I didn't know what to expect, and that experience changed me. I mean it changed it changed the way that I that I related to the the notion the idea of death. Um when I came back to reality after that experience I had, I had sincerely felt as though okay, I that was it. I did experience death. I had a I had an experience that was whatever it is that happens after we pass. And I know I know that Likely, that's probably not what I experienced. If I was to really look at it, you know, I know what I mo- more more likely than not had experienced, which was just I had a you know I had a chemical induced in my body and my brain did a, a funny thing, but it was such a it was such a profound and powerful experience that I would be doing myself a, a, a disservice to not really lean into how that viscerally felt and if this really did feel as though I had passed on to the you know, whatever, whatever comes in, whatever, whatever is a part of the afterlife. I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I'm not, I'm not so, I mean, I don't think I'm so much like a, a super spiritual person. Um, but I did have an experience that I, that I feel deep down was, uh, I cannot deny that that experience was quite, that felt quite true. And so, you know, uh, reintegrating over over the next couple of weeks after that experience, I had this deep sensation of like um, of comfort surrounding the idea of of dying of passing on.
0: Um, it sounds like I'm gonna just guess here. You're not maybe you have much less fear of de- death, but um, in this dying chapter, which again hopefully is you know very long, are, are there things that you are afraid of or, or worried about?
1: That's a good question um i probably would have answered that question uh like last week i probably would have been like nah, i don't think so i think i'm good like i, I don't think there's anything i'm afraid of and, and to be honest with you when it comes to the notion of actually dying you know i don't know for sure but my guess would be the thing that most people are afraid of is like what what comes next or i'm afraid of the pain i, I don't want there to be pain or I'm afraid of, you know, I'm afraid of what will happen to the ones that I love. How, like, how will they feel? How will they handle my death? And those things don't scare me. I'm not afraid of what comes next. Cause I, I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's, there's a possibility that what comes next is what I experienced when I did the five MEO DMT. And if that's the case, oh man, that's awesome. It, like, cause that was a really lovely place to be. Um, but I don't know. So what, I mean, what, what, there's no point in worrying about something that I don't know. You know, the pain part, well, I'm not too worried about that because discomfort and pain is a part of, of life. And that's a part of any process. And, and, you know, luckily we live in a a day and age where there's a lot of, uh, medical practices that can alleviate that pain and alleviate that discomfort. And so I trust that that will be there when I need it. And then the part of like being afraid of what will, what, you know, how, how will my loved ones be? How will they feel, you know, it, when I'm gone, how is it going to affect them? Well, I know they'll be sad and, and that's okay. That's natural. That's normal. They're going to grieve and that's normal and that's natural. And they're going to move on. Just like I've moved on from the deaths in my life, you know, I'll never forget, but also I'm, I'm not going to grieve for the rest of my life. I've moved on and this is, and that's life. So I'm okay with that.
0: And so, what about today? I mean, what are you thinking about for your fears, worries, or regrets? I'm currently taking a um, a
1: course, uh, a compassionate end of life care course, so a, a death doula training. And um, the course it, it started just this this past weekend. So my first two days were Saturday and Sunday. We're recording this on a Monday. And um, as a part of the the course, one of the things that they had us do was we broke out into these groups of of 3 and in the group one of us had to be an observer we were role playing another one of us had to be uh, the death doula and the other one of us had to be the dying person and then we would switch off after we've done and we had 12 minutes to facilitate a conversation so the doula had a 12 minutes to facilitate a conversation with their client who is dying to talk about whatever it is that might be coming up for them, their fears or, you know, you know, plans for their vigil plans for, um, uh, plans for, you know, any legacy plans that they have, yada, yada, whatever. And so in this conversation, when I was the the dying patient, the doula just kind of opened up and said, Hey, like, how are you? I haven't, it's been a while since we've chatted. What's been going through your mind? And, and I said, uh, you know, I don't know. There's, I've been thinking about, uh, I guess I've been thinking about how, you know, my the legacy I want to leave behind, and and I guess I've been thinking about like making meaning out of the time that I've I've spent here on Earth. Um And then I guess there's a couple things that have come up where, you know, it's a, a little bit kind of hard to think about, like the things that I don't that I don't have control over. And uh she said, Oh, well, can you tell me a little bit more about that? The things that are out of your control? And I started to say, um, yeah, well, And so again, for context, in this exercise, we were supposed to imagine that we are dying now in this moment. We're not, you know, it's not like 20 years from now. It's like present day, the people Mm -hmm. around you, the like, where are you now? This is where you're dying. You have three months left today. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought about that. When I think about my death, I think of like, oh, maybe in five years, two years, you know, one year, whatever. I don't think like I'm dying now because I'm not dying now. So it's the first time I've been put in this place where I'm thinking, okay, I'm dying now. And she says, elaborate on the things that, that are out of your, your control. And I said, well, you know, I guess I'm 35 and for the most, for the, for the most part, my entire life, I, I always thought how I, I would never want a, a child because I have cystic fibrosis and I don't want to bring a child into this world if I'm not going to be around to take care of him or her. And, um, but in the last year I've been put on this medication and it seems like my life is actually going to extend much greater, much longer than I anticipated. And now I'm sitting here talking to you because I'm dying and I didn't have a kid. And that breaks my heart that I'm not going to know what that's like to have a kid. And I got so emotional. I I fully broke down and I, you know, I was, I was in shambles. I was in tears and it made me realize like right then and there, like, oh, I, I really want to have a child. I really want to have a child. And to die without going through that process of life, without having that experience, that scares me that that's like, that's a, that's a fear that that's a new fear that I just unlocked that I didn't know I had. I don't want to die without, without being a father. Um, which is su- such a wild thing to say. Uh, and, and I don't think anyone will really like understand why that's so wild, unless you had known me for, you know, for my entire life. It's a really, that's a really big deal for me. So I think when, you know, to, to, you know, again, I'm such a long winded, long winded answer here, but, um, the, that's the fear the, the fear is, is, um, and maybe more broadly, the fear is my fear for death is dying before I've had the chance to do the things that I really, really want to make sure that I do.
2: It sounds like to me that you have been preparing to die. And now with this new medication, yeah, you are shifting, like it's mind-blowing, the idea of living.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, was what, that was one of the parts of, um, of Trikafta that I wasn't anticipating the identity crisis of all of a sudden being the guy who's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die at 30. You know, I'm going to die at 35. I'm going to die at 40. All of a sudden having that kind of lifted that veil lifted and and going, Oh, Oh shoot. Maybe I'm not that guy. And like, you know, I, I mean, this sounds like a joke. It sounds kind of funny, but I lived, I lived 35 years of my life, not, not even close to anticipating what it means to have to retire, you know, yeah. like financially, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like, what? <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. And so there, there is, there is a sort of like identity crisis that yeah. comes along with all of a sudden you know, being given this new lease on life. It, it's amazing, but also the, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of anxiety-inducing.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is so ironic because when we say hope for the best, plan for the rest, the rest is usually, you know, for the decline, for yeah. the reality, for the dying, for where we know this is headed. But for you, planning for the rest now, it's like hope for the, okay, so like I've been planning for dying, but now I have to plan what if I live? Like, yeah. now what? Like, that has not been part of this storyline until, you know, this past year. So th- that's probably as mind blowing for you as it is for someone in their thirties to get a cancer and start preparing for death. Like, yeah. Well,
1: yeah, yeah. I never yeah. thought about it that way, but you're, I mean, yeah, kind of, I, yeah, yeah. It's just the inverse of that. And it also like, you know, You You know, you
2: know what it's like, sorry, it reminds me of people who are waiting for a transplant. Mm. So these people have a chronic progressive life limiting illness, maybe it's their heart, maybe it's their liver, maybe it's Mm -hmm. their lungs, and it's going to advance, it's going to become terminal. And if they don't get a lung transplant, they know they're going to die, but they might get a lung transplant. And so they have to straddle two worlds of the possibility of imminently dying Mm -hmm. or living. And it's like a very difficult space to hold. Mm -hmm. And like, what if the transplant falls through? It's almost like they're scared to be hopeful for it. Um, Or what if they get the transplant? You know, like it's, so you you are living in a little bit of a twilight zone. So if you're feeling unhinged, I would just lean into that and talk as openly about that space as you have around, you know, the things that you've known so well. Um, And so I guess getting back to what we were just talking about, how you have had this mind blowing experience of the possibility of living much longer, you are going to move through that the same way you've moved through the rest of your illness. And that is just by facing it head on and dealing Mm -hmm. with it and expressing yourself and rolling with the punches and sharing with everyone around you uh, because that's therapeutic for you. And it's helpful for everyone. Like I love your style.
1: I think it's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I feel that way too. I feel that with this new you know this this mind blowing new lease on life um when it first clicked when it first started to to happen you know when i first started taking the drug when i first started having these these thoughts i didn't i i i was at a loss for how to feel i was I, you know i was in this it was very it felt very very chaotic and 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 staccato and 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 loud and And I thought, oh, my God, like, what, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And then a couple months later, you know, it was like what you just said. It's it's oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. I'm like, I'm going to I'm going to do this the same way I've done what I did in the past. That's it. There's no it's not it's not, uh, you know, it's just novel. It's just new. It's just a new it's just a new lens to see the world through. Um, I just got to get used to the hue.
2: I just wanted to say that I fundamentally believe, feel very strongly that people have the right to be invited to know everything about their illness. Um, Too many times uh, people are diagnosed with something that is treat it as if it's just chronic, meaning that it will just be there forever, but not change over time. Mm. And people don't have the idea that this is going to change over time, it's progressive, and eventually will be life limiting. And I'm not saying that people uh, should be forced to know, uh, or have to know, but people deserve the invitation to know, there's more information for you if you want it about the future. Yeah. Um, it's different when you're dealing with younger people who, you know, are 10 years old, maybe or 12. Um, there is a sensitivity to their readiness to be invited into that information. Um, but uh, but as an adult palliative care doctor, you can't believe how many 50-year-old, 60-year-old, seven-year-old, eighty-year-olds yeah. who have not been told. That this illness is one that we know for a fact is going to change. It has chapters, beginning, middle, and end. Millions of people have had this illness before, mm. and m- many people are not offered that information. And
1: and like to the, you know to the to the point of of uh, disclosing that type of information to like children. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a specialist. I, I don't know much of anything. Um, but I, I, did, I did recently have a really interesting conversation with someone who specializes in, um, in sexual education for youth. And one of the questions I had for that person was, um, what's the appropriate age to start to talk to a child about sexuality? You know, is it like, is it, a, is it when they're five? Is it when they're 10? Is it after they've hit puberty? And their answer, I I thought was really, really wonderful, which was there is no, there is no time that's too, too soon. You can talk to a child about sexuality at any point in their, in their life as young as, as physically possible. But what matters is the language that you use when you're having that conversation. So if the language is appropriate and it's Mm -hmm. enough for them to like comprehend the information that they're being Mm given, that's. That's what's important. It's not about the age, mm-hmm. it's about the language being used. And I think, I think that the same thing can be said for anything. I mean, you know, talking about illness, talking about death, whatever it might be, there's no age that's too young. It's just about the language that you use to get that information across to a young mind so that they can process it correctly.
0: Yeah, Jeremy, so building on that, my question is really about your thoughts around this idea and what you've learned from interviewing hundreds of patients and families on sick boy, you know, what have you learned about how we can use language to go upstream and improve the patient experience? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned,
1: especially through, uh, conducting, you know, countless conversations on sick boy is that, um, we all have very unique ways of, of communicating the things that we're going through. Um, You know, Sick Boy is a, is a, is a health comedy podcast. You know, I should say it's a it's a comedy first health second, really. Um, A comedy podcast about talking to people who are dying. We're talking to people who have, you know, Crohn's or colitis. We're talking to people that have, debilitating endometriosis or talking to people that have ALS, a comedy podcast. There's nothing funny about stage four cancer. There's nothing funny about someone who's, you know, who's like end stage cystic fibrosis. There's nothing funny about Parkinson's disease, but there is something to be said for the humor that can exist within the human experience of living with those things. And there's something to be said for the power of humor and the and the you know the the therapeutic value to humor. Yet when we have a, a guest on the show, you know, maybe today we're talking to Tiffany, who has um, you know, who had breast cancer and lost both of her breasts. And then tomorrow we speak to, you know, Stefan, and he has uh, end stage prostate cancer. The conversation with both of those individuals is going to be very different. the The sense of humor is going to be very different. The ability to to mine out and find humor in those situations is going to be extraordinarily different. I think. I think you know, the the one thing that I've learned the most when it comes to communicating about the hardships that we've been through communicating about our health, com- communicating about death is, um, is really how, and, and I feel like this sounds kind of cheesy, but re- really, it's, it's about how like active listening really, really pays off. You know, just being able to sit and listen to someone as they share their story is so valuable for yourself it's valuable for them it's valuable for anybody who happens to be observing or listening um just being a really present active listener and 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 giving yourself the opportunity to go wherever that conversation wherever wherever the flow of that conversation wherever it's going just go with it go with it wherever it may go don't try to make it anything specific don't try to push it anywhere that it's not meant to go you know, just let go of the wheel and, and let the ride take you where it may.
2: I think it's it's more of, of the same theme that you bring uh, to your audience, which is instead of running away, uh, listening is another form of, like you said, just being present, bearing witness,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: leaning in, staying in the discomfort, being around suffering but not running or sugarcoating it. Um, so that's not easy, but it's very fruitful. Um, just listening, yeah. pausing, silence. It, it, it draws out intel that you would never be able to harness if we just stayed superficial and just floated around, mm-hmm. right? So um, that's probably what makes your podcast and your interviews so interesting and popular um, is because you lean in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it also like, just to piggyback on that, I think it also draws out the authenticity that, that can Mm -hmm. be had within the conversation, the authenticity of the person that you're speaking to it, you know, when you get rid of all that, all that noise and, and all that superficiality and you get to like the authentic person, when you're listening to that, When you're hearing, when you're taking on that part of someone, that's when you're able to just be loose and you're able to like, you know, actually just be comfortable in -hmm. having the conversation, which oftentimes, again, is very uncomfortable. It's just finding the comfort within the discomfort, if that, you know, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense.
0: Yeah. So I have a burning question, Jeremy. You know, we talked about your mortality awareness being very high and your acceptance of death and the fear around death. But as we discussed, every illness has a beginning, middle, late, and end stage or chapter. And so if death is the last page and dying is the last chapter, you know, for many diseases, the dying chapter can be very long. And so my question is really about your awareness of what that whole dying chapter looks like. Because it seems that the end of life you're not scared of, but do you have a sense of what dying looks like and what to expect? As your disease unfolds,
1: so knowing what the end of uh, life with CF looks like, you know, knowing that it it's uh, it's it's most certainly hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging. You know, it's going to be it's going to end with um, either either not getting enough oxygen, uh, or it's going to end with not being able to expel enough CO two. You know, and both of those are <laughs> seem torturously awful um i i'm aware like i'm aware that it's gonna it's the if if that if, you know if this is what takes me out and not dying in a plane crash or you know whatever some other freak accident it's going to be uh it's going to be a rough experience but i'm not shying away from that rough experience i'm i'm okay with that i'm okay with Whatever that might throw at me, um, because again, to what I said earlier, I know that you know through palliative care and through through modern medicine, there are a lot of things that are there to alleviate the mm-hmm. process, um mm-hmm. however that might look in the end, and um yeah i'm 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 fully open to the experience, whatever that might be, however drawn out that might be, as long as I have a few you know key things that are that are, um, that are there like in place for me to ensure that the the time that I do have while I'm still Mm -hmm. holding on is, Mm -hmm. is meaningful, you know, has a sense of purpose, has a sense of beauty, has a sense of calm. And, you know, that just has to do with the people at my bedside, you know, the items at my bedside, the, the overall vibe, you know, I'd rather not, I'd rather not have it happen in a hospital, but Hey. Maybe it will, maybe it has to. And if it does, you know, whatever we can do to make that space comfortable. um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you have the right to remain silent. Just kidding. You have the right (laughs) (laughs) to know what does it look like for someone who is dying of cystic fibrosis? Is pain actually part of that process? And Is breathlessness an issue? Is cough an issue? Like what you need to know what are the truths and what are the myths and misconceptions. Mm. Um, And I invite you uh, at some point to explore you know, what does dying look like with cystic fibrosis, literally, Um, because you are Jeremy, you're very unique, but you're not the first person with cystic fibrosis. And so you, there is a lot of information available to you to describe to you, just like I would describe to a patient with cancer or Parkinson's or ALS or MS or name any progressive life limiting illness there's a way that people die with those illnesses. And most people harbor many misconceptions Mm. about what that's going to look like. Like when you say pain, like I know it's going to be painful. Like I can imagine like painful in terms of existential, like not wanting to die, but physically painful. I I don't see that in your future. Mm. So again, you, especially when you say things like made, before you ever make a decision about anything, make sure you know exactly how things unfold Mm. so that you truly have informed decision-making. And my last point is, don't you think you should have a palliative care doctor on your podcast who has cared for lots of dying
1: people? i mean sammy we got we got room you want to come on (laughs) i do
2: (laughs) let's get it i want you to draw (laughs) out humor in me
1: (laughs) (laughs) let's make it happen let's make it happen i would love to have you on the show yeah and and to your point like you're right you know that that's um that's something that's a conversation i've never i've never had with with you know my nurse practitioner at the cf clinic or or my my you know my physician um I've never had the conversation of like, what does it like? What does it actually look like? Literally, what is yes. literally what is happening when someone's yes. at, you know, end stage CF, their last days of their life? What does that look like? I Googled it, you know, and I've, so I've taken the whole, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten that information from Google. And I went, no, oh, okay. Interesting. But like, I've never actually talked to, you know,
0: my physician who would
1: have been at the bedside. Right.
0: Yeah. And so of, tell me, tell thousands me. Thousands of people. Yeah. 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 So, so we, it, yeah, after our podcast, we started a book, which is coming out in the fall, but it it talks Congrats. about the importance of this because thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> we're like, what did we do? Why are we doing this? <laughs> but, but we, um, because it's, it's what we found is on Google, it's very medical, yeah. but what Sammy does at every single visit is make meaning. And like, what is their life going to look like? And what is this, what are the decisions that you're going to have to face that may you know all the things you talked about like what's important to you and knowing but all these different things that are happening to your body even, or, even today
2: yeah. I met someone who has a, a prognosis of a year and this person had no idea what to expect between now and the end, and yeah. the end. no yeah. idea and it, this I spend most of my career uh, painting that picture for people because doctors are very uncomfortable uh, Mm -hmm. sharing that information. They assume it's going to make people depressed or hopeless or, you know, and it's the opposite. People feel better when they know, like, thank you very much. It's my body, my life. Uh, I want to choreograph this. Thank you very much.
0: You know, we're almost out of time, but maybe I can propose that Sammy talk about this more on sick boy and you guys can connect and, talk even further. I'll wait for Good my check. invitation.
2: <laughs> I'll be, I'll be <laughs> sending it
1: right after this.
0: <laughs> Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure to be on
1: the show. Yeah, and 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 also like I got to say just to hear you guys are, are putting out a book. That's amazing. Like that's really really cool and I I think that these these types of conversations are really important. So it's nice to know that you know the folks folks like yourselves you know people on the research side people on the clinician you know the 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 actual like front lines work are having these conversations like that's just it's so nice to know um, and I really appreciate being a part of it so thank you
2: yeah
0: thank
1: it's
2: you a pleasure
0: thanks for listening don't forget to rate review and subscribe if you haven't already you can visit our website waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join in. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.